Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a podcast about workplace culture, psychology, and life. Hi, I'm Bruce Aisley. I'm Ellen Scott. And I'm Matt Cook. There was a moment in the interview that we did in, in this week's show where, right at the start, where I realised, actually, I hadn't questioned some of the values and the decisions that I was bringing. I said something to today's guest, Catherine, Catherine Price, about the importance of fun. And I suddenly realised I don't think that that was universally accepted and universally agreed. Catherine Price is a, a writer. She writes about science. She writes about health. And she's written a couple of fabulous books. Uh, firstly, she had a huge international success with a book, How to Break Up with Your Phone, which, uh, as she will say, started from a perspective of her trying to understand the relationship she had with her own phone and how she could make it less toxic. And she's also written a book that we ended up dedicating the entirety of the discussion today um, to. Sometimes you never know where these interviews and discussions are going to go. And and I didn't know if we'd run out of space. In fact, we filled so much time with a, a discussion about her book, The Power of Fun. And for me, it was just a brilliant and kind of life-affirming discussion about something that we sometimes leave for chance. And we, we don't necessarily set about creating fun as a pursuit in our lives. We'll be back to talk after the interview. But right now, let's jump into the discussion with Catherine Price, who, amongst other things, wrote The Power of Fun. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I wonder if you, to kick off, if you could introduce yourself and explain what you do. Sure. My name is Catherine Price, and I'm a health and science journalist and author of books, including How to Break Up with Your Phone and The Power of Fun, How to Feel Alive Again. And, and your work seems to be a navigation guide of how we can navigate the, the changing world around us and, and try and find a way to greater fulfillment and greater happiness. That's how I perceive it. Actually, how do you perceive it? I think that's a good way to summarize it. I mean, it's basically a way for me to deal with my own personal issues that apparently are not just unique to me. So <laughs> I'm working through my own stuff and hoping that it will help other people do the same so that ultimately we can live more joyful and fulfilling lives. Uh, to, to kick off with sort of the idea of fun, fun seems to be this sort of um, elusive thing. It's the best thing to have and it's the hardest thing to find. It's, how do you think about fun and the pursuit of it? Well, I'm glad you said it was important because I think one of our misperceptions about fun is that it's actually not very important, especially for adults. We often prioritize fun for kids or think it's a childish thing. And then we're happy if it happens to us, but we don't really give it much thought. We don't put it at the top of our priority list. So I personally got very interested in fun after I wrote How to Break Up With Your Phone, which we can talk about too, but that's a guide to creating healthier relationships with technology and creating better boundaries. And I realized that once I'd gone through that process myself, I ended up with a lot more free time, which was, you know, you'd think would be great. But in reality, it uncovered the fact that I'd lost sight of what I wanted to do with my own free time, which led to a bit of existential despair. Uh, <laughs> but that in turn prompted me to try to figure out what my own priorities were. And I came to realize that the moments in which I felt alive the most alive were the moments in which I was having fun. And so I became very interested in looking into what fun actually is, because there's not a good dictionary definition of it, and then investigating what 
research there might be about its benefits, which is a spoiler alert, there's not much research about fun or its benefits. But I came up with a definition that I believe has a, a solid foundation of science behind it, suggesting that fun, as you just said, actually is essential for our happiness and our health. I think it would be helpful for me to give you my definition of fun so we can base our conversation on that. So based on my research and surveys of people around the world, you know, asking them for their own stories from their lives that they describe as having been truly fun, I came up with the definition that fun, or as I think of it as true fun, is the confluence of three separate states. And those states are playfulness, connection, and flow. So I often show this as a Venn diagram with three circles where you've got playfulness, connection, and flow, and the center overlapping section is what I consider to be fun. And to clarify what those three terms mean, by playfulness, I'm not necessarily talking about playing games. I think that's a misperception. Another, There's a lot of misconceptions about fun, but that's something our minds leap to is, oh, it means you have to be childish, you have to be playing games. It doesn't mean that. It just means having a lighthearted attitude towards life, finding ways to laugh, not taking yourself too seriously, letting go of perfectionism. That's what I mean by playfulness. Connection refers to the feeling of having a special shared connection or special shared experience, I should say, with someone else. I was really interested to see that in the stories I collected from people, the vast majority of them had another person in them, even introverts. So it wasn't necessarily a distinction between introverts and extroverts, like in terms of whether or not people were involved, it would be the type of interaction, an intimate interaction versus like a group interaction, for example, between introverts and extroverts. But it seems there's this element of connection. And then the last element of fun, I believe, is flow, which is a term that refers to when we're, quote, in the zone, when you're totally engrossed, actively engaged in what you're doing. Nothing else matters. You often lose track of time. It's a very active state. So flow is different from kind of the hypnotized state we get into when we're, you know, watching TV on the couch and seven episodes pass and we don't know what happened to the afternoon. That's different. That's what's considered to be junk flow. I'm talking about when you're really actively engaged in a work project or a conversation or, you know, when an athlete is playing a game or you're playing a piece of music, something like that. So playfulness and connection and flow all have benefits on their own, which we can talk more about. There's a lot of evidence behind their impacts on both our mental and our physical health. And then when you combine all three together, that's what I believe is the definition of fun. And to me, that suggests that fun actually truly is (laughs) not frivolous, but actually essential for us. I typically think about leisure time as being divided into three buckets. So you have on the one end, what I just described as true fun. That's the playful connected flow. It's a very energizing state. It's very nourishing. It will fill you up and carry you forward. So it's great to prioritize anything that will create the feeling of true fun. The reason I call it true fun is to distinguish it from its evil alter ego, which I think of as fake fun, which is another one of those three buckets. Now, fake fun is my term for activities or products that are marketed to us as fun, but that don't actually result in playful connected flow. And by by far the, the top example of that would be social media. You know, when we have a couple spare moments, what do most of us do? We open up our phones and we tap on the Instagram icon or TikTok or whatever it might be. That passes the time and we think of it as like, quote, fun, right? Because it's not work, but it leaves us feeling kind of empty as opposed to energized and nourished. So you've got fake fun and true fun. I like that distinction because once you can tell the difference, it's easier to eliminate fake fun because there's no real benefit to fake fun unless you want to just zone out for a little bit. And then I think there's this big middle bucket that I think of as just activities we enjoy. So stuff like reading a book or watching your favorite TV show before it makes you feel gross about yourself. Once it passes the line making you feel gross about yourself, we're in fake fun territory. But of course, many people love watching movies or TV shows. So if you're doing that and it's making you feel kind of relaxed or just, you know, it's fulfilling some other need, great. Um, This big bucket of enjoyment houses many of our solitary activities that are kind of quieter activities. So again, like consuming something like a TV show, reading a book, taking a bath, going for a walk alone, stuff like that. So I like to think of these three buckets because I think it helps us make better decisions about how to spend our non-work leisure time. Because you have a limited amount of time in general, and you certainly have a limited amount of leisure time. So if you come into a leisure situation, and you can ask yourself, what do I need right now? You know, do I need something that's just going to relax me and kind of like be a quieter experience? Maybe then you just want to do something like read your book or go for a walk, right? Like watch a show. But could you stand to to get some energy? Like, do you want to actually put forth a little bit more effort so that you can actually get this kind of more 
energizing state of true fun. I, I just like to ask myself that because at the end of the day, you know, you can go in two different directions. And I think for many of us, the default is to just go to the couch, sit down, watch something. And then that's at its best enjoyment, but it's at its worst, it can lead to fake fun where you just feel kind of gross about yourself and emptier inside. Um, so anyway, it's been very helpful to me personally to think about my leisure time that way. And I recommend people play around with it themselves to see if it can be helpful to them as well. I think you're right about the automatic one being the fake fun and the kind of empty enjoyment. But I know that and I know that scrolling endlessly isn't making me feel good. And yet I keep doing it. Why <laughs> is it that we keep choosing to do that kind of fake fun instead of doing the fun that would actually be enjoyable? Well, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that it's easy, right? Like it's, for example, I, I often derive true fun from going to a guitar class. I take a guitar class that requires me to leave my house. <laughs> I have to sign up for the class. I have to go to the class, you know, I have to get myself off the couch to go to it. That's a lot harder than it would be to just sit on the couch and look at social media on my phone. So there is some effort involved often and actually getting yourself into situations in which true fun is likely to occur. But the other huge reason, which hopefully most people are aware of by now, is that the companies behind our most problematic apps, the most fake fun inducing apps, make money based on how much time and attention we spend on them. And so therefore they are engineered in incredibly sophisticated ways to actually hack our brains, like actually induce the secretion of dopamine, which is a neurochemical that's designed to help us establish and maintain habits to actually stay on their apps for extended periods of time. So it's really kind of, I find it infuriating because the entire business motivation is to keep us on the apps and they're really, really good at it. They're really good at it. And it's them versus our feeble human brains. <laughs> um, and just to clarify what I mean by that, if you actually do an let me back up. Dopamine essentially is our brain's way of recording when a behavior is worth doing again. So it's essential for the survival of our species because dopamine will do things like remind you that, oh yeah, I was in the woods and there was this raspberry bush and I ate the raspberries and they tasted good and I felt nourished and I didn't die. Oh, well, I should remember where that bush is and I should go there again. So it's a motivation chemical, right? That's great. Dopamine also makes us reproduce. So again, species survival, great. But our dopamine systems are non-discriminatory. They do not care or have any judgment behind what behaviors they're reinforcing. If you encounter a dopamine trigger in your environment, you're going to establish to your brain that that's a behavior worth repeating, regardless of whether or not it's something you want to do. And that's the reason that dopamine is also behind our addictions, because drugs and substances that are addictive actually trigger the release of dopamine as well. So the, the point here is that if you're trying to create a product or a service that will get people to spend as much of their time as possible on that product or service, all you need to do is bake dopamine triggers into the product's design. And our brains will encounter the dopamine triggers. So for example, bright colors, novelty, unpredictability, variable rewards, and that's going to trigger the release of dopamine and get your brain to associate that behavior with something that's worth doing again. And that's one of the reasons it's so hard to break away from that trance we all get into when we are on social media. So, so what's happening then? If, if that is activating dopamine, then when you have the components of pure fun or real fun, I think you called it, um, what's the difference? Is your brain interpreting it in a different way? Is there... Is there oxytocin there as well from the connectivity what would be the difference and how would my brain interpret those things I, I love this model playful connected flow mm -hmm. and it's made me sort of, sort of rattle around through my head now of all the things I love doing and I have to tell you your book has had so much influence on me that the, the very question that I said at the start was um, fun was so important is because in the two years since I've read it, I've thought about fun all oh, the really? time, all the time. I'm trying to, uh, truly, oh. honestly. Oh, that's great. Um, and there was a wonderful Guardian article about it. And honestly, I, it, it's, it's forced a, a constant appraisal for everything I do. Um, but th th I'm just interested then, back to the, the brain element, why would one be f experienced as satisfying and one have this sort of artifice to it. What's the difference? Huh. Well, so I'm not a neuroscientist, so I don't want to overstep my boundaries here. But what I would guess is happening is that when you're engaging in social media, as you're saying, it is, it's kind of like a pure dopamine drip. 
which unfortunately does mean that we get habituated to just getting these little bits of dopamine. I remember speaking to someone who founded the Center for Internet and Technology Addiction here in the States way back in the late 90s. He was very ahead of his time. And he was talking about one of the big challenges of tech addiction in general was that people start to derive less enjoyment and pleasure from everyday experiences. Because as he put it, like a sunset becomes less satisfying if you're used to constant novelty, you know, via social media on your phone. But I think that you're probably right that there is an element of oxytocin and other, quote, feel good chemicals being released when we're actually in a social interaction in person with other people having fun. And I find that absolutely fascinating. So I should also back up, there's really no research on fun. I think because we don't have a definition of fun until now. And also because we think of it as frivolous. You know, if you were evaluating grants and you got one that's for cancer research and another for the benefits of fun, I'm pretty sure you're going to give it to the cancer research. Um, but I think what you said stands to reason that there is a cocktail of hormones and chemicals being released by our bodies when we're in these more nourishing fun situations that can't be replicated online. So I think that's part of the reason that we end up feeling a lot more nourished than we do when we have these in-person fun experiences, then when we do something that is a fake fun, um, such as scrolling through social media or sitting alone on the couch. And I think it probably does have a lot to do with our intrinsic need for socialization. Humans are an incredibly social species. And there's been a lot of research done on the health effects of loneliness and isolation, which is fascinating to me. I mean, you know, I think a lot of people know by this point that emotional stress is not good for us physically because emotional stress over time leads to chronic, chronically elevated levels of a different hormone called cortisol, which is a fight or flight hormone. It's very important if you're trying to run away from something, but it's really bad for us if it's elevated over time. And when you experience, but what I think people don't recognize is that it's not just emotional stress that triggers long-term chronically elevated cortisol levels, but also loneliness and isolation. They cause emotional stress too. And so loneliness and isolation are associated with the same health risks as emotional stress over time. And it's such a big effect that there was one really big meta-analysis that found that the health effects of loneliness and isolation were comparable to those of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. A day. 15 cigarettes. I mean, totally insane. And so I think that's really interesting because, again, while no one has studied fun in this way directly, I think it stands to reason that since fun is by it definition, by my definition, a relaxed state and one in which you are socially connected, it probably carries the same health benefits or rather counteracts the negative health effects of loneliness and isolation. Seems like it's such a difficult task to have true fun. You know, there's on the one hand, the addictive dark patterns that these tech companies are creating that are lulling us into this fake fun side. But then also when I think about your three elements of fun, Flow and connectedness, I would say culturally or maybe socially, we, we might see more of a benefit to that as adults. But playfulness sticks out as one that I could imagine many people, as you said at the top, kind of think, oh, no, that's for kids. What's your experience of those three elements and how people resonate with those? Well, can I first ask you why playfulness sticks out to you so much? I think certainly when if I think about flow, I get this sense of, oh, I've heard about that about athletes. I've heard about flow in terms of uh, a real deep thought. And I guess my lens is maybe on a professional lens where it feels more serious or at least not serious, but there's a purpose to it. And certainly I think I've been socialized to think that it's not important unless there's an output, <laughs> that it's kind of a productivity mm -hmm. uh, element to it. And similar with connection over the last few years with the pandemic, you know, really deeply understood the need for connection. But it doesn't feel like that's permeated in the same way with playfulness, hmm. at least in my, yeah, in my opinion. Right. So, I mean, I think that what you're saying certainly mirrors the reaction I get from a lot of people. It's like, okay, connection, kind of get that flow, makes sense. But playfulness, especially in a work context where everyone is already kind of walking on eggshells, not to offend anyone anyway, <laughs> it can be kind of difficult to think about playfulness. So, I mean, one thing that comes to mind, though, is to point out that really our most effective moments in life are moments in which an element of playfulness are, has been involved. So, for example, if you think back to your own education and you think about your favorite teachers, I mean, for me, at least, I mean, some of my favorite teachers were the ones that were funny, that who like gave us some reason to laugh, where you you've became very engaged and there was an element of humor there, or, or, and, or, I should say, where you were given an opportunity to explore things 
and experiment with things on your own, where you weren't just spoon-fed information, but rather you were given a prompt or something that you were supposed to explore. That exploration and experimentation is a form of playfulness because you're trying things. You know, you're, you're not confining yourself to one path. You're actually opening possibilities. And that's an important element of playfulness. I would also say that creativity and playfulness go hand in hand. If you have your inner critic in full effect and, you know, you're shutting yourself down or you've got, you know, we've all been in like brainstorming settings or conversations where there's one person who just, instead of saying yes, and they're always saying, well, no, that won't work because blah, that's not playful. If you actually get yourself into a state where you feel comfortable having the wrong answer or giving an idea that's not perfect, that's when you actually generate enough ideas to have a good idea come out of it. So I think the, the, quick summary answer to your question is that we misunderstand playfulness. And so we don't get its value. Um, but if you think, even if you think about your friendships, like if your favorite people to spend time with, sure, you're going to have some people who are pretty serious by nature, and you have kind of deep conversations. But even those conversations can be playful if you're exploring, say, a philosophical topic or a political discussion. But I also guess that many of your favorite people to hang out with are the ones who make you laugh. And that's a form of playfulness too. So I think we kind of get it wrong. And we also don't really understand the value of playfulness at work. I think we often think, or we conflate like playfulness with teasing. Those are not the same thing. Teasing makes someone feel bad. You know, joking around with someone when everyone's in on the joke, that's a form of play. Teasing is not. Um, And obviously like harassment or something, that's not. Or, you know, when you make a joke that's totally inappropriate and then say, I was just kidding. That's not playfulness. That's just totally inappropriate. But, you know, I've been doing these uh, workshops with this this group called Fundmentum Labs here in the States, and they focus specifically on how to harness the benefits of fun at work. And just as an example of how you can use playfulness to actually come up with good ideas, they have this wonderful exercise that they call worst first. And the idea is that if you're in a brainstorming situation, it can be tricky if you're coming trying to come up with good ideas. Like right now, if I was like, okay, let's figure out the best taglines for your podcast, right? Or something. It's just, you're, you're self-conscious. You're worried about saying something dumb and that you're going to leave that hanging and everyone's going to think you're an idiot. So what they do instead is they, they actually suggest you come up with horrible ideas. So the goal is to come up with as many bad ideas as possible in a certain amount of time. And what they often do is break people into groups and give a time limit. So three to five minutes, like the worst ideas. And this often ends in hilarity. You know, I remember we did one, we did a Zoom workshop and it was like, what's, what are the worst ways to create a sense of connection on a Zoom call? And it was like, oh, I don't know, you can have mandatory, make it mandatory that everyone leaves themselves unmuted for the entire call. That'd be a bad idea. Or like, (laughs) start the call where every person makes a comment on someone else's physical appearance. So it's just like these horrible ideas or like, you know, have one of your parents come to the Zoom call and just sit in the background um, if you're working from home from your parents. Anyway, but the idea is that that loosens people up. And what they do at the end of the exercise is to have people come back, look at that list of quote unquote horrible ideas and then say, is there the seed of anything good in there? And most of the time, there's the seed of a good idea in there that you never would have come to if you hadn't allowed yourself to be playful. So that's kind of a rambling answer to your question. But I think bottom line, we misunderstand playfulness and we don't recognize its value and we don't know how to apply it to uh, settings that are not just leisure time. It's actually useful in all regards. It also bonds people together. People you play with, you're closer with. So the more you can play or be playful with people, the closer you'll feel with them. The closer you feel with them, the stronger community you'll have, the more productive you'll be, the more creative you'll be in just all aspects of your life. I mean, I can't, I am obsessed with play. We all need more play communities. I could talk about it for the rest of our time together, um, but I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> Does that make sense? Is there a sense that we've created this false opposition that productivity is in opposition to play? Yes. I sat with someone <laughs> on Tuesday and she sort of rattled through all the things that she was accomplishing and her goals going forwards. And it just was ever present in my head. It's like, and she hadn't smiled for 30 minutes. And, you know, and it was just ever present in my head. This woman doesn't look like she's enjoying life. She looks like she's accomplishing things. But, and is it because we've created this false opposition, do you think? The productivity yes. is so hot as a topic. I think totally. I mean, because they're linked. First of all, productivity shouldn't be your only metric in life, right? As you're saying, you should probably try to enjoy it because no matter how productive you are, we're all going to end up in the same place. So uh, I don't know, might as well enjoy your time here. Um, but without getting overly morbid, I also think that, yeah, we, we create this false dichotomy because you're most productive when you're having fun. I mean, going back to the education thing, if you were enjoying a class or, you know, if you study with friends, for example, often a lot more fun than trying to drill yourself on your own in the subject. So I think mm. we get it totally wrong. The more you're enjoying 
yourself, the more you're going, the more you're going to have these, as we we're saying, feel good hormones and chemicals in your body that actually helped you learn and help you absorb information, help you come up with new ideas. So we really do need to try to break down the wall we've erected between playfulness and enjoyment and quote unquote productivity. There really should not be, they shouldn't be separated in the way that we currently have them. I think my question was kind of the opposite of that, which is what if you start to view fun as a means for productivity and start to try to like optimize it because you're going, okay, if I have fun, I'll do better work. How do you avoid falling into that trap of it just becoming like another thing on your to-do list, another way to be more productive and be better? (laughs) Well, I think you should try to incorporate little things that feel fun or that delight you into your everyday routine. So that actually is useful to kind of try to hack your way into, I think. Um, But I also think that in terms of how to have fun, you do need to make room for spontaneity and you do need to remember that ultimately, like if you try to force fun, it's kind of like romance. Like if you try to force it, it's going to run away. Like things are going to not work. You have to, (laughs) I like to say you kind of like light the candles for fun, but like you can't come on too hard to fun. But I think that there's, um, I don't know, I think about it in two ways engineering fun and then making space for fun. And so when I say engineering fun, well, let me back up one more step. I want to clarify something very important. I think people get wrong about fun. Fun is a feeling. It is not an activity. This is essential because a lot of times if I talk to people about what they think is fun, they'll give me a list of activities that they enjoy, which is great. And those activities might often lead to fun, but fun is the feeling that results. So, you know, for example, here in the States, at least pickleball is like a big thing. People love pickleball. And, but but you could play the exact same game or sport with the exact same people, honestly. And one time it's incredibly fun. And Mm. one time it's not that fun. We've all had that experience with any of our preferred activities. And in the same way, you've probably had experiences where something that seems like it objectively would never be fun ends up being really fun. Like I recently heard from a guy who said he had a ton of fun waiting for a delayed flight at an airport because he had this really fun conversation with these strangers who were standing next to him. No one would choose delayed flight as like their top, you know, fun activity. So fun is a feeling, not an activity. With that said, we all do have a collection of activities and people and settings that are more likely than others to lead to fun for us personally. And I call those fun magnets. And I think that's an important concept because if you can identify your fun magnets, the people, the activities and the settings that often lead to fun for you, then you can make space for that within your day. So you can kind of engineer opportunities for fun, set the stage for fun more regularly. As a personal example, as I was saying, I take a guitar class. It meets Wednesday nights from 6.30 to 8. And I've been going for, geez, I think it's almost six years now. And I really do try to treat that as sacred time. I do my best not to miss guitar because I know that's a fun magnet for me. It doesn't always result in ridiculous amounts of fun, but it's always more fun than sitting at home. But the other flip side, you know, so I would say prioritize your fun magnets, identify them and prioritize them, make space for them in your schedule. But then the flip side is you also just need space for a spontaneous fun to occur. And I think that's getting at what you're talking about too. You want to just not always be staring down at your phone, for example, because if you do, you're never going to have spontaneous interactions with people or you're never going to notice other opportunities. You need to not pack your schedule so tightly that you don't have space to say yes to something random or, you know, decide on a whim that you're going to go do something that might be fun or delightful for you. So I think that there's two sides to this. There is the engineering side of making sure you know what's likely to lead to fun for you and making sure to prioritize it. And then there's also leaving space so that these unexpected moments of fun, which we've all experienced, you know, we've all had moments of fun that were totally unplanned that just led this, I don't know, created delight in your day that stand out in your memory, but you never could have planned for them. So you need to do both those things. How could workplaces leave that space for fun? Because I think the inclination of a lot of bosses is okay we need to have fun we'll do enforced engineered social activities (laughs) how do they not do that well I think that in order to create more fun at work and harness the benefits of fun at work if that's what we're trying to do employers need to not focus on fun as the top goal but rather focus on the ingredients so how can you create more connection playfulness and flow in a workplace setting Um, With flow, that's kind of the, I think, one of the biggest problems because everyone's constantly being interrupted by everything, by Slack notifications and emails. And um, I think more rarely people interrupting them in person. That would actually be great if our interruptions were all in person, but we're hardly able to focus. So I think that employers and bosses could do a lot by actually 
giving their employees more space for flow by doing things like setting boundaries on when emails should be sent. For example, nights and weekends are not a time to send people emails. If you, and I should back up there, start by defining what an actually an actual emergency is in your workplace and then establish a system for how emergencies will be communicated or people will be communicated with in this situation of an emergency. And it shouldn't be email. So you want to make it possible so that people can actually step away from their work email and their computers at night to give them space for whatever they need, whether it's quiet relaxation or pursuing fun. But there needs to be kind of a company-wide effort to create that space for people. Um, and then also creating boundaries around meetings or just distractions during the workday and modeling that as a boss or employer. And for connection, I mean, you can do you can do various kinds of like conversation starters at the beginning of meetings. I remember Speaking for one speaking for one company whose CEO told me that they had a tradition at the beginning of each meeting of giving each person a minute or two to just say something about what was going on in their life. And they could choose. I mean, it could be something silly and superficial or it could be something, you know, deeper or more personal. But they would basically like share a little bit about themselves at the beginning of the meeting. And it led to this really great feeling of connection and community that I could feel as a speaker coming to that place. And actually, the same place did something for playfulness that I really loved, which was that they gave employees more autonomy in creating playfulness within the workplace. So I think a lot of times companies will do things like a happy hour, you know, or like they'll be kind of a traditional thing like a sports a game, which and both of which kind of exclude people by definition, because maybe people don't want to drink at work with their colleagues. That's not it's kind of weird, right? Like, that's a weird thing to do. People are worried about being inappropriate. And they're like, let's just get a lot of alcohol and have you all hang out on a Friday. Anyway, or, you know, the traditional like golf outing, where if you don't like golf, you're just not part of that work community. Anyway, this one company had a thing where they, they had a budget to allow people to appoint themselves as CEOs of a particular interest. So there was like a CEO of fancy coffee, or there was like a CEO, I think it was actually of beer, but a CEO of something that they were interested in. And then the employee could organize something for their colleagues. So one person really liked baking, they were like the CEO of baked goods, and they people would come in on Tuesdays, and the employee would have some things that she'd baked and like people would come in. So it was like basically giving people a little bit more control to kind of show their personalities and show their playfulness and their creativity in the workplace setting. And it didn't feel top down. It felt bottom up. So I think that that's a really great opportunity um, or way for companies to empower employees to feel more connected to their workplace community and show a little bit more of themselves in an appropriate way that can then lead to more fun interactions. Because then the next time someone runs into them in the hallway, they've got something else to talk about rather than just a work project. It kind of has all these immeasurable dividends that it pays out down the line in creating more ties between people in the company. I love the idea of focusing on the inputs rather than focusing on the outputs. And it makes me think, you know, certainly over the last few years, we've seen such a huge investment of time, energy, add money into well-being initiatives. You know, we have nowadays, you know, yoga, meditation. Interestingly, the types of things that five, ten years ago would have been scoffed in a boardroom. And it makes me think similarly with certain things like some of the exercises that might lead to fun. But but it's interesting around focusing on the inputs rather than the outputs. Where do you think businesses often go wrong. You mentioned in terms of happy hours when they're trying to yeah, force this fun. Well, I think that businesses often don't recognize that the goal should be to make work itself feel more fun. If people are having more fun doing their work, they're going to do better work and they're not going to be resentful about it. And they'll feel more connected to the company, more loyal, honestly. So, I, so yeah, I think happy hours, I mean, there's a time and a place for a happy hour. That's fine. But I think that it's very awkward if people are just together in a room with no activity to do and there is not work time. So you're not really supposed to be talking about work, but you have nothing, you have no alternatives. You haven't given them an alternative other than to drink alcohol. So that's what I think the problem is with happy hours. If you can provide an activity, so sorry, let me back up. If it's outside of work hours, providing people with an activity to do is very helpful, like a class or just something where they can engage with one another. I think that's why like ax throwing has become a big thing, at least in the States or escape rooms had this big, you know, momentary like fad before the pandemic. But another mistake I've seen, this one made me laugh. It was like a, I won't even say what kind of company it was, but it was a very intense company where people were paid by the hour and they'd set up like a game day. And there was this like big Jenga game. And in one of these rooms, 
that people are supposed to go play these games in the middle of the workday. And I was like, but you have people who are billing hourly for their services and you're telling them now that they're supposed to be grateful that you set up a game of Jenga, that they're now feeling obligated to go play in the middle of the day. Like that is, I get where you're coming from, but that's not actually helpful. That's just going to make people roll their eyes and feel annoyed at it, right? So that's where I think trying to incorporate more rituals, for example, um, and practices within the workday that can actually make people feel a greater sense of playfulness and connection and fun is very useful. So for example, you know, I know other companies that start with some kind of icebreaking question at the beginning of Zoom calls, and it feels a little bit forced at first, you know, like, is pineapple a acceptable pizza topping is one I've heard people use, or um, what's the last internet rabbit hole you fell down? Really, like anything, you can find lists of these online, but it actually does create a sense of connection. And you can spend just five minutes at the beginning of a call on this. And you'll notice that people's demeanor changes on those calls, and they actually end up being more productive calls, because you've introduced this element of playfulness and connection to the call. So I think trying to incorporate the elements into the workplace as part of work is really important and not to think of these as you work in one room and you play Jenga in the other room. <laughs> it's interesting you say that. I, um, I was chatting to some educators, some uh, some teachers this week, and they they were telling me the challenges of remote learning and that quite often these, these teachers were dealing with excluded pupils, so pupils that have been expelled from school. And they were talking through the challenges of remote working. And and my instinct was, I think, sort of aware of, of what you've said and aware of something that I saw um, someone from uh, an emergency room at hospital said. Um, I said, have you tried experimenting with opening with a game and it's it's interesting isn't it that it's um it's probably something that we might wince at if we before we do did it um but quite often we find ourselves in a changed state by having engaged in these activities uh, the same people told me that they'd organized a school trip to for everyone all the teachers to be part of a choir when people found out they were going to be part of a choir, there were so many of them that tried to back out that didn't want to do it. Right. But the, the head teacher said, we've been overwhelmed with the response to it, that people didn't want to do this, mm-hmm. but they've said it was their favourite ever day at, at school. And so it's so interesting, this sort of strange, conflicted relationship we yes. have with passing through the membrane of fun, that sometimes we, we only really appreciate the benefit when we've, we've gone through, the osmosis is complete. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, it's the same when you're trying to motivate yourself to get off the couch. You're like, oh, I know I kind of, I know I probably would feel better, but it's so easy to stay here. <laughs> I mean, I think in those cases, you know, it's important that it's a paid day. You wouldn't want to be like, it's choir day and you don't get paid. <laughs> I think that was the problem with the Jenga thing. It was like, well, now you're not making your hours, but you're supposed to be. But I think that's definitely true. It's really amazing once you've experienced it to see the difference in a group of people once they have played together. You know, and and it's very interesting to me. I'm very interested in education. I, I was briefly a teacher right after college. And just to notice that we seem to get that play-based learning works for like little kids. It's like, oh yeah, play-based learning. That's like a whole buzzword here. But it's true for adults too. We kind of are like, oh no, at some point you just sit at a desk and you do your work, but that's not how our brains work. It's certainly not how, you know, neurodivergent brains work. It's really the amount of executive control that it requires to sit there and just like, I don't know, force yourself to work as opposed to making it enjoyable. You remind me of a story I recently heard myself from a teacher, a woman who's in education, who's just fantastic uh, in terms of her approach. And she did a teacher training where instead of having the teachers sit in a room and be lectured to about like age appropriate ways to design lesson plans, what they did is the whole group of teachers in the training went out to this natural site. They listened to this kind of hands-on talk by this geologist. And then they came back to their training room and they all were given kind of art supplies that were based on the ages that they taught. So for the teachers of smaller kids, they were, you know, things that like a kindergartner would use, a five or six-year-old would use versus a high schooler, someone who's 17 or 18 years old, different materials. And then the teachers were put into groups and given time to actually try to represent what they had learned using the materials that they had been provided with, and then to talk to the group about why they chose to do what they did, why it was appropriate for their age group, all this stuff. And the woman I was speaking to said it was by far their best teacher training ever because the teachers themselves had engaged in play and they had gotten into the minds of their students in that case and experienced it through their students' eyes. And that in turn had made them much more bonded with their groups because they'd had a project to work on. They weren't just abstractly talking about something. And people were laughing and having fun. And it was the most memorable and she thought best teaching workshop they'd ever had. 
So there's just, if you actually start looking for these examples in your own life or just in life in general, you will start to notice that the times in which we have the most fun are the ones when we felt the most bonded with the people we were with, when we got the most done, when we remember the most. You know, I think actually it's fascinating to think about humor as a teaching tool. And if you're listening to a lecture and the person makes you laugh, to me, at least, that's a much more memorable lecture than someone who's a dry lecturer. Like, guess what? The difference between a good lecturer and a dry lecturer is the amount of engagement you feel and the amount you're you're having fun listening to them. I mean, it, to me, it was really like a mind-blowing moment to recognize there's this feeling that that we all know and we've experienced and that we just don't value. We've never thought about it. And once I started to think about it, then like you, it became kind of all consuming. I just think about fun all the time and how to create. And I notice instances where people use some element of fun to create community, to create a different vibe within a group of people. And I notice how differently people interact if they've had fun. You know, I think it's actually could be an, an incredibly useful tool for building greater connections between people of different groups within society. Because when you're having fun with someone, you actually don't see their differences. Like you don't see them as a different nationality or race or religion or anything. My favorite example of that is Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama, who had this wonderful friendship. Obviously, two men of very different backgrounds and very serious, like traumatic, you know, experiences. The two of them were giggling constantly. There's an amazing documentary uh, that has joy in the title. I always forget the name of it, but they're just joking around with each other, giggling. You know, Archbishop Desmond Tutu tries to get the Dalai Lama to, to dance at some point. And they just talk about the importance of joy and the importance of focusing on things that create joy and fun as a way to overcome life's traumas and as a way to overcome our differences. There's an adjacent story to that, actually. In the Northern Ireland peace process, there was a, there was a long period um, where there were two adversaries, um, Dr Ian Paisley and uh, Martin McGuinness. And Dr Ian Paisley was the most senior and most strident Protestant. And Martin McGuinness kind of represented the political wing of, of Sinn Féin, the IRA. And they mm. started, initially, they wouldn't speak to each other. They wouldn't be in the same room as each other. By the time they'd both served as the the First Minister and Deputy Minister of, of Northern Ireland, they were known as the Chuckle Brothers because they used to go <laughs> round laughing at everything together. And it was so fascinating that being in each other's proximity and both having the same playful sense of humour gradually took them into a place where they kind of begrudgingly loved each other. It's sort of, you know, it's a, yes. it's a film waiting to be made, that one. But I, I love that story of how playfulness really took them to a place that they never, ever expected to go to. Exactly. And I think we need more of that. And it doesn't mean, mm. you know, it's not like a Pollyanna-ish thing where it's like, and then they got along and the conflict was resolved and peace was ever after. No, but they were probably able to have more productive conversations. There's a number of examples that I've come across of that. I mean, for example, the former Secretary of State here in the U.S., Madeleine Albright, had this friendship with the Russian, I think, Foreign Defense Minister, Yevgeny Primakov, where the two of them, <laughs> there was some summit in Southeast Asia, and there was a tradition of the delegates actually putting on musical numbers together, which itself is like, at first, you'd be like, why the heck would you do that with taxpayer money? Oh, my God. But in reality, what ended up happening is people really bonded. So the two of them ended up doing an adaptation of the musical West Side Story. And instead, they did East West Story. And they substituted instead of the I just met a girl named Maria. It was I just met a girl named Madeleine Albright. And they had this like apparently vodka fueled night, you know, courtesy of the Russian delegation where they rewrote all these lyrics. Apparently there were like ambassadors dressed up as gang members. I'm sure it wouldn't fly now. But if you read the news articles <laughs> about this, it's hilarious. And what Madeleine Albright used to say is that, you know, it doesn't mean that they like got along on everything. They obviously had very different opinions and p positions on stuff, but they had this foundation, this friendship that was based on playfulness that enabled them to work more productively together. And indeed, if you look up pictures of the two of them together, there's this warmth that is almost shocking when you consider all the differences they must have had between them. And a lot of that came from the fact that they were able to play. I'm struck when you said, you know, even just a throwaway comment of one might be surprised you, know, you spent taxpayer money on it. <laughs> I find that so interesting because it seems like there's this professional veneer that we have to break through. And almost if Silicon Valley doesn't, you know, uh, say that meditation is important, mm -hmm. then no one does it. And then, you know, Silicon Valley is now given the green light to yoga. So now other businesses are doing it. It feels like there's so many things that we intuitively have probably known for thousands of years that are good for us. Walking in nature, 
exercise, having fun, that we maybe know on some level, but aren't given the kind of professional tick. And I'd be curious to get your thoughts on almost why is that? Why does it take so long to break into the world of work? And not in a cynical way. I think, unfortunately, they can get packaged up in a cynical way right. to meditate because you're more productive, as Ellen said. But it seems to take so long for things that we have known are good to kind of come back around. I think there's a lot of different reasons. I mean, I know I said this before, but I do think one of the fundamental issues is not having a good definition of fun. Like you kind of know, you know, walking in nature, like nature, it's a thing. Like you could have different types of nature, but we all basically know what nature is. But you've got all these different kind of conceptions of fun. And sometimes fun, as I mentioned before, is conflated with teasing or you're having fun because you all got really trashed after work and went out to a strip club. Like that's not what we want, you know? So I think the first step is to really record, like to, to narrow in on what is meant by fun, um, which hasn't really happened. And yeah, I think, and I think we just don't think about it. That really is the other thing. We just don't think about it. It's just a, a concept that's under our noses, but we've never really given it much thought. And we have typically thought of it as the opposite of work and seriousness. And I think that probably also has to do with our upbringing. I mean, as I was saying, you know, we we prioritize play for kids, but at some point you, quote, get serious and you, and you think of play as just for children. It's child's play, right? And we don't think of it as something that adults do. But then I, I don't know, it just shocks me because whenever you do have an experience in which you laugh with someone, even if it's a stranger on the street or like the guy I met who had the great time, you know, waiting for a delayed flight, like those are the moments that light us up. They're the moments that we remember. They're the moments that bring us the most joy. And to me, it's just almost tragic that we don't prioritize it much because we're missing out on some of the moments that make life worth living. And we're kind of poo-pooing them. I mean, there's so many, I could just go on. It's like, yes, I think yoga and meditation are amazing and very good for you. But one of the main goals of both those things is to make you present. Well, when you're having fun, it's a flow state, right? And you cannot be in flow if you're not present. If you're distracted, you're not in flow. So anytime you're in flow, you are present. So if you want to be more present and you're not into yoga and meditation, just prioritize fun because you'll be more present by definition. Same thing with happiness. All of us are so obsessed with happiness. I want to be happy, but like, Happiness is very nebulous. You know, someone pointed out to me once that if you if you asked, if I asked you guys, like, are you happy? We could spend the next two days talking about, well, what is happiness before we could even get to that? But if I asked you, did you have fun this weekend? You'd probably tell me yes or no, like, us immediately, right? But the thing about fun is that when you are having fun, you are happy. It, you just are happy. And that was another kind of mind-blowing moment for me to realize, oh, wait, if I can get into this state, this feeling of fun more often, I will be happier by definition because I'll be spending more time happy. And, and that really has changed the way that I view and structure my own leisure time, both for myself and for my family. I think my family, I've got one kid and my husband and I, so it's three of us. We often used to do things, just the three of us, you know, we'd just take our family unit and put ourselves somewhere else. <laughs> and, and there's a benefit to that. And that can be fun to explore a new place. Novelty can be very fun. But I realized that one of the things I love the most is when we interact with other people, whether it's people we know already, like, you know, trips with friends, or just having a shared activity with strangers. So we, just as an example of the past two years, you know, I just spent August trying to prioritize going to family camps. I, I have a total reputation. Well, first of all, as a crazy person among my friend group, but like as this camp addict, because I go to all these different camps. But it's so nice because you've got activities that you're doing with your family. You're also interacting with other people. And to me, at least that often leads to a feeling of fun that's not achieved if we were to say, go to a, you know, go someplace, just the three of us and do a traditional vacation. I'm certainly not like a lie around on the beach person for vacation. That's another misperception people have is that, oh, I need to be rejuvenated. I have to go relax and not do anything. That's totally wrong. A lot of times the most rejuvenating thing to do is to be engaged in something, to be actively engaged. Um, anyway, so it's really changed my own decision making in terms of how to spend my time individually and then what activities or what to prioritize as a family. And this idea of connection, so you said, you know, wanting to be around other people. The elephant in the room at the moment, obviously with workplace culture is hybrid, virtual, in-person. Do you have a sense from your research whether there's a difference in the quality of connection if it's virtual or in-person? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I think we all know this intuitively, right? It doesn't feel the same. If the, if the four of us were in a room together, it would feel very different. Now, of course, that would require international travel 
And I'm grateful that we can do this remotely. So there's obviously benefits to being able to do this, but it's just not the same. And I think that that is a real challenge we face right now is that work is so hybrid now. And so many of us are working remotely. And even people who are going into offices, maybe in a situation where it doesn't really matter, they're in the office, they're doing Zoom calls from their office with their door shut, and they're not interacting with people. So I think it's one of the challenges of our age, honestly. But I do think one thing that we can do is to recognize the value of being with people in person and to prioritize it when we can. And to respect your differences. You know, some people, going back to the introvert comment from earlier in this conversation, some people are not going to want to spend that much time with other people, which is totally okay. Or So I just ask yourself, who are the people with whom you feel the most comfortable and what kind of social interactions feel the most nourishing and energizing or whatever you need, you know, to you and prioritize those. Don't worry about if it doesn't match with what other people say you quote should be doing. Um, but I think just recognize that for all humans, social connection of some kind is important, but it differs by the person. So doing a little bit of introspection to figure out what that is for you. And then in as much as you can, prioritizing it is very important. We're kind of out of time. And so I'd love to just know your advice of best steps. I was really struck by journaling or keeping a fun diary seemed to be like a really interesting device that you mentioned. I know you also run a course on these things or you, you, you run activities. If you were to give someone the catalyst, the, the, the taper that they could like to give themselves more fun in their lives, what, what is that step? Well, I think the first step is to, once you decide you're going to prioritize it, which hopefully we've motivated you to do, is to try to figure out, as I said, some of your fun magnets and some of the characteristics of those magnets, basically try to figure out what tends to lead to fun for you so that you can start to build more of that into your schedule. And um, you could do that on your own just by keeping a journal, you know, a daily journal. I think of it as a fun times journal where you notice moments where you experience playfulness or connection or flow. Tiny moments are fine. doesn't matter. And jot those down and label them with a P or an F and a C and notice if more than one occurred. Cause that'll give you a way over time to look for themes, be like, oh wow, you know, I wouldn't have thought that I often have fun when I go grocery shopping and speak to this particular person at the butcher counter, but I actually do. So maybe I should make, you know, not order groceries online. It's like, you, you could just discover things about yourself. Um, so I'd recommend starting with that. I also have a free fun starter kit on my website, which is katherineprice.com. And I created a, a 14 day find your fun course, which basically walks people through the steps in my book. Some of the book has the book, The Power of Fun, starts with an exploration of what fun is, why it's actually important, you know, what we get wrong about fun. And then the second half is like a step-by-step plan for how to have more of it. So I took all of that and put it into a course, which is also on my website. Um, but I'd say, you know, really a good place to start is just to notice the fun you're already having and build on it. Because you probably are having more moments of playful, connected flow than you realize, but you haven't had a name for those moments. And so you haven't been valuing them. So any moment where you have like just a fun interaction with somebody that counts. And I just love that because to me, it's like collecting beads that you're putting on a necklace of these little memories of fun. And when you're feeling down and like, you're not having fun, you will have these memories to look back on and to savor, which is a psychological technique that's been shown to boost our moods. And you'll also have material that you can mine for ideas going forward of how you can have more fun in the future. Catherine, I just want to tell you how influential your book was on, on me. Um, there, there was a Guardian article I mentioned that me and my sister both simultaneously sent to each other saying, going forwards, our lives are going to be optimised for fun. And it was like <laughs> simultaneous, it was like the, the, the remarkable synchrony of us both sending this article to each other. And it's, I promise you, it's been my, my philosophy in life ever since I've done wow. that. I'm obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with... I'm obsessed with trying to cultivate it, trying to bring people along to it. I, I love it. Genuinely, so I'm so thrilled that you took the time to talk to us. Yeah, well, if you ever want to do, you know, something with your listeners where it's like a fun intervention and we can touch base, I don't know how you stay in touch with people, but we could actually invite people to come with us on prioritizing fun for a month. I often do that in February because I think, fun, you know, it's the shortest, darkest, to my mind, least fun month of the year. <laughs> so I often do a fun intervention then, but I'd love to join forces on that because I do think the more people we can get involved, the better. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. This is wonderful. Thanks. Thank you so much. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thanks so much to Catherine. I loved that. I think I made that pretty clear. Any thoughts from you too? I think the number one realisation from chatting with Catherine was I didn't know what fun was, which seems really embarrassing and silly to say. I think also I just had an idea of fun just being any time that wasn't spent working. Um, but her clarification of the actual definition of what you need to be having true fun has kind of blown my mind a bit because, yeah, like I say, most of my leisure time is spent doing things that are not true fun. It's scrolling social media, playing on my phone, doing all of that kind of stuff. And I can't really think of a time recently when I dedicated the time to, you know, connection and that true life affirming, joyful, fun thing. So yeah, kind of mind blown after it. Yeah. I thought what was so brilliant about her work is how she breaks it down into its constituent parts and thinking about fun almost as the important byproduct and I guess it's kind of similar to a lot of the talk around happiness you know if you go out actively trying to be happy it's pretty difficult to find it but if you do other things then often happiness is a byproduct and I love the way she kind of her advice was to focus on the inputs the three inputs which she goes into around fun rather than trying to build an organization that is fun or to put on fun activities because yeah no one wants to turn up to organized fun I agree with both of you. The thing that, as Ellen says, someone defining for you the the constituent parts of fun, it might seem unnecessary or pedantic. I found it so helpful. There's been times where I've lost a day to playing video games, whatever. And at the end of it, you've like, I found I've got like a slightly hollow feeling where I kind of was enjoying it when I went, but I don't feel... I've been lifted. And the fact that she said that actually there's a couple of components of that that are components of fun. The fact it's flow, the fact it's playful, but the, the lack of feeling connected to other people meant, meant that it didn't quite work. Now I suspect playing online games with your friends probably fulfills that part of it, but the connectivity I think was something it's quite easy to overlook. Uh, I've, I mean, I, I say in the discussion, but I've been, so impacted by this it's really made me evaluate whether I've set about creating enough fun in my life and and how I want to live my life yeah I I was fortunate to stumble into Dungeons and Dragons a couple of years ago (laughs) and I think I'd basically uh, subdued or hidden all these geeky parts of me that I clearly loved as a teenager And then, oh, they just weren't cool. So I kind of just forgot about them for a while and then somehow found my way back to it. And it is just a moment, well, it tends to be a couple of hours with friends. So you've got the connection there, uh, the playfulness because you're role playing (laughs) as different things. You're putting on silly voices. And yeah, it just seems, uh, just reflecting, it seemed to have all those parts of it. It's playfulness. There was the connection with friends and, you know, hours go by. And it was interesting when I kind of started to analyze it. I mean, you never really want to analyze fun. It kind of feels like analyzing a joke. But yeah, there was that light bulb moment of, ah, that's probably why I enjoy it so much. My main takeaway was that I haven't been doing enough fun things. Um, And since the conversation, 
I don't think I've nailed it yet. I think I'm still searching for my fun thing, like Dungeons and Dragons. Love that for you. That sounds like brilliant. And I'm kind of jealous that you found that thing that ticks those boxes. I haven't found mine yet. And I think I really am struggling to find what that would be and then actually take the leap and do it because I think it is the mental block of going, oh, but it's effort to get there and it's effort to do these things and what if it's not productive or whatever. There's still that block for me, but I was definitely inspired by Catherine to push past that and try to find my fun. I do hope that in the same way we've talked about how like productivity and hustle culture has, has had a moment where it's sort of gone it's like sour milk now and it's it's lost its tang. And I, I, I do hope that the flip side of that is these these are moving the other direction because even even as Matt said there, Dungeons and Dragons, there is something in me that wants to trivialize and mock someone else's idea and you realize I, I hear it in myself i'm like man that's the toxicity you know it's easy to sort of you know point fun at people fishing by the side of it it's a toxicity of trying to intrude in what other people's fun is that means that we end up just doing less of this well, it's definitely judgment. I'm judgy as hell. Like, I can definitely think of things that other people must find really fun and enjoyable. And I'm going, like, that seems stupid. Or, like, that's a waste of time. And that's not healthy or good. It's not conducive to us having fun at all. I almost think it's it's because it's seeing someone doing what they love completely unashamedly is so powerful and also can make me feel so bad sometimes. It's almost perhaps I'm judging because I'm like, oh, you know, maybe I would enjoy that, but I don't allow myself to. I mean, Bruce, you talk about kind of the mocking aspect. I did that to myself for about 15 years, which is why I didn't explore mm. it. Well, it's not, you know, it's not cool. And then you start to think, well, why does that matter? Or, you know, what will people think? And seeing someone doing whatever they do, you know, fly fishing, collecting trains, I think nowadays when I see that, I'm just like, yeah, right on. That's so cool. I mean, there's that TikTok guy, the guy that just unashamedly loves trains. Millions of followers now. I think he even got a modeling contract. He did. Uh, he did, yeah. And what I loved is he he blew up because other people were now happy to kind of see that. And that was not the case when I was growing up. It just feels like there's mm -hmm. kind of maybe a, an attitude shift around fun, which is nice. I read a fabulous book a couple of years ago by Hannah Ewins, who, who wrote a book called Fangirls. And it was, and it was specifically about like the um, teenage music fans. And she makes a lot of comparisons in there that the, the actual teenage music fans do themselves. So whether they're fans of One Direction in the Day or um, BTS or whatever. But she, the, these girls make a comparison that, look, you know, yes, they might wear clothes that are suited to their fandom or they might go somewhere and scream or, or be emotional at times, but men do all of those things with regards to football and it's completely normalized. Men, men can very happily be, be filmed crying at the end of a football match in their cosplay, pretending that they are a, a striker and none of that is ridiculed. And yet, you know, we've got such an ability to mock other people's fun and, and to try and trivialize it and, make it extreme so it's um yeah I, I, I loved thinking about these themes thank you to Catherine now she would love me to point out that both how to break up with your phone and the power of fun are now courses and I've put a link in the show notes I think you can sign up to the courses initially for free and and one of the things she mentions throughout is that sometimes these things are practices that really we can bring into our lives through trying them out and experimenting them and trying to make them into our daily rituals. So do check those things out in the show notes. Any thoughts on the chat from either of you two? I think I've found a bit of fun now I'm thinking about it because I think one of the fun moments of the connection, playfulness and like flow state was kind of being a fangirl over certain music and doing that with other people. Now that I'm really thinking about it, I think that recently I've got unashamedly into like Taylor Swift and Olivia Rodrigo. And the moments when I have been chatting about that obsession with lyrics, etc., with other Swifties and Livies, 
that's been fun. So I feel I feel proud of myself for having had that now. Is Vampire written about Taylor Swift, do you think? No. No. Oh, yeah. I dis I strongly no. You don't subscribe to that. <laughs> I can get into it. No, I don't even think they're feuding. I think people are just reading into it too much. I think um most of that album is written about bad men. Not Taylor Swift. New York Times podcast this week goes into great depth ascribing three songs to Taylor about being about Taylor Swift. Who knows? I hope it's uh, not. I don't want to think that, but we can get into that on another on another podcast. This is where your fun lives, absolutely. I, I'm strongly supportive of that. Anything that brings you fun, lean into it and do more of it. Yeah, one of the light bulb moments for me was that it reinforced something I came across a couple of years ago, which was called the seeking system, which is essentially something in all hu- all humans, all mammals, which is our innate sense of exploration it's the part of us that is curious about the world which goes out it's a part of us that plays when we're younger and that sense of play is what activates the seeking system and the seeking system is shut down by fear so there was this experiment which put a tuft of cat's fur into a rat's cage and it completely stopped the rats playing and what i thought was so interesting is this sense of play from the seeking system but then also catherine price talking about how important playfulness is in fun just kind of brought it full circle for me and just made me think how crucial fun is at work because it activates our seeking system it activates our curiosity and then the flip side what shuts down fun and what shuts down play is fear so kind of fear-based management styles so yeah i'm going to be thinking about how we activate fun using those three inputs connection flow and playfulness to kind of activate not only fun but curiosity and creativity the seeking system obviously a big part of dan cable's alive at work book i thought you were going to give him a second shout out into in uh, a different couple of weeks so um yeah fabulous part of that book as well great i've loved i've loved the chat today and i what a gift that catherine was able to talk to us and and uh, what a fascinating and, and exciting way to think about how you can live your own life in a more fulfilling way. I've been Bruce Daisley. I'm Ellen. I'm Matt Cook. Thanks so much. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.